they have the worst scoring margin in the 21st century. I don't know what happened to Don Verlin after we got killed by Northern Arizona. I talked about it forever, and I don't get paid a penny to play for that, to coach that basketball team. Quick update we have about the presidential search. The state of Idaho is really failing on a ton of enthusiasm. Beating Boise State and coming to this program is just regularity. We don't have that. Welcome to Cubs of the Club, your official, unofficial podcast from the University of Idaho family. I'm your host, Brian, and today we're going to give you guys an update on the men's basketball team as their season closes out. We're going to answer the question we addressed last week of who, what would we rather have happen, beat Boise State in football or win an FCS championship? We'll go over a little bit of the bios for the five presidential finalists and go over the Big Sky landscape as a whole for men's basketball. But before we get to all that, there's an important issue I want to talk about that we at Tubbs of the Club have not given enough attention to. And that is the resounding success of our Idaho women's basketball team. Now to go way back to when the basketball season started, initially the goal was that this podcast would be split between covering the men's and the women's uh, teams. We didn't have, you know, let's say a minute quota. It was going to be one person would produce the men's side, which is me, and we would have another person take care of the women's side. Tubbs of the club is in its infancy. Um, so for one reason or another, that didn't work out the way, way we'd initially planned, uh, which is what happens when you don't have a central studio that everyone works out of. Um, and I spent most of my time talking about men's basketball, which you know if you're listening to the podcast. But we're at the point in the season where it's important to acknowledge the single most successful program Idaho has right now, and that's John Newley's women. You know, right now the women's team is 18 and nine overall, which that itself is a good record. That's winning two out of every three games. But I want to throw a little more context here because this team is better than their record, at least I believe so. Now the women's team played a relatively rough non-conference schedule. They had a, a lot of power five teams and also some better group of five teams as well. And through the through their non-conference um, schedule, the team was three and six, which going in to conference play, I mean, there's, it's not shocking to hear of a non-conference record of three and six and think that maybe things were not going to work out as well as, um, a lot of people believe they would. Well, fast forward to, to the beginning of March. The since going three and six in non-conference play, the women are Idaho women are fifteen and three, including nine and one in their last ten games. So the team has three total Big Sky women's league losses. Those losses are twice to Northern Colorado and once to Montana. That's it. You know this this team's in first place in the conference heading into the final two games of the season. They have a one-game lead over Northern Colorado for between first and second. And there's a two-game lead between Idaho and the teams tied for third, which are Portland State and Idaho State. Now, right now, again, to put further context on how strong the women's team has been, um, you know, you, if you're a Vandal fan, you may have heard the names uh, Michaela Ferenz and Taylor Pierce. And 
you know, those are the two two leading scorers for the women's team. Michaela Friends, by the way, is the all-time Big Sky scorer, which she passed that mark, I believe, in the last couple games. You know, Michaela Friends is the ninth leading scorer in the nation, averaging 22 and a half points a game. Taylor Pierce is not doing too much worse. She's averaging 18.9 points a game. Those two who are likely first-team all-league candidates at worst. What Michaela looks like she'll be first-team. Taylor would be second-team. I'm not saying I actually think Taylor will be second-team. I'm saying worst-case scenario. The top two players on the women's team are one's a first-team and one's a second-team second all-league. But the, the Idaho women, they have a scoring margin right now of plus 10.8, which to put in context, I know the teams don't play each other, and I'm not trying to make any men's and women's basketball comparisons, but in the last podcast we had, one of the things I highlighted about the men's team is the men's team had one of the worst scoring margins in the 21st. They had the worst scoring margin in the 21st century. At, at the time of the recording last week, the men's scoring margin was negative 15.1. Our women's team, who is, has the second best scoring margin in the big sky, they win by an average of 10.8 points per game. The only team that has a better margin is Idaho State, and it's a negligible difference. Idaho State has a positive, has a plus 10.9 scoring margin, which is essentially the same thing. Although, from a style points perspective, I'm going to give our women's team an enormous uh, advantage over Idaho State because our women's team plays a fast, wing-oriented style of play, which is to say it's fun. Idaho State plays slow. They give up about 55 points per game which means they score about 65 points per game. That's uh, it's, mo- it's partially a matter of a lower number of possessions. Our women have the 20, number 20 scoring team in the nation, averaging 77.9 points a game. And right now, Joan Lenardi at ESPN.com in the bracketology section of the website, which Joan Lenardi's done forever, or at least for a long time, ever since I started paying attention to the NCAA tournament, Right now, the Idaho women are projected to be a 15 seed, and really it's a placeholder for whoever wins the Big Sky Conference Tournament. Uh, right now, Idaho is in first place in the league, so that's why Joe Lenardi has the Idaho women slotted there. And, you know, I just want to spend a little bit of time making sure we acknowledge uh, how strong the women's team has been. And, um, you know, there's, there is there is an enthusiasm gap. This isn't just an at the University of Idaho. This is across the entire nation. There is an enthusiasm gap and there's a media coverage gap between men's and women's sports. Um, I am not going to go into the causality for that because I think that's a, that is a long topic and, and that deserves a lot of research on its own. But I wanted to make sure that I gave the women's team proper, at least a little bit of attention, you know, at least a little bit of a shout out on the podcast because they're doing great. You know, John Newley is going to have another great season where there's a good chance this team makes the NCAA tournament, or there's at least a chance if, let's say, the conference tournament doesn't work out that well, which, by the way, big news for our women is the conference tournament in Boise could be a de facto home court. I know it's a neutral court, and this is a topic we haven't gone into that much on the podcast because for the men's team, look, our, men's are, our men are probably going to lose in the first round of the, NCAA, in the first round of the Big Sky tournament. That's just where they're at. But our women may have a de facto home court when they are playing in the conference tournament in Boise, which is a big deal in terms of an advantage. Um, 
you know, back in 2014, 15, the winner of the men's regular season, the winner of the women's regular season, they hosted the conference tournament. Now that in a lot of ways, I wish we still had that dynamic because it would be great for Moscow to host the women's big sky tournament, but that's not where we're at. It's going to be in Boise, but Boise, though it's a neutral site, Boise is the number one city, as far as I understand, of where Idaho Vandal alums are likely to live. And of course, um, if people are interested in traveling from Moscow to, to Boise is not an insurmountable uh, drive. It's about five hours. Um, and Boise is also not an astoundingly expensive place to stay, particularly if you do something like Airbnb, where you can do it a little bit more affordable, which I'm not advertising for Airbnb. I'm just going, what I'm just trying to say is our women's team has had a great season and they're going to close their season out at home Thursday, March 7th. They play, they host Weber State at 6 p.m. Now you can watch these games on Pluto TV. They host Weber State on March 7th and a big game to close out the season, which is the also the senior night for the women, will be March 9th, which is Saturday. Tip off is at 2 p.m. That game's against Idaho State. And if you were, were paying attention to you know two minutes ago, the Idaho State Bengals are tied right now for third place in the Big Sky. Idaho has a one-game lead, which is to say uh, the number one seed is our women's teams to lose. It's theirs to lose. But these two games do matter for seeding purposes, both from the Idaho Vandals perspective and also the Idaho State perspective. So those, those last two games, like I said, March 7th, hosting Weber State at 6 p.m. in Moscow at the Cal Spectrum. Then Saturday, closing out the season, March 9th, hosting Idaho State at the Cal Spectrum. Uh, make sure to go support the women uh, if you're in Moscow. And by the way, um, with how the men's basketball team has been this year, how the men's basketball team flamed out in the second round of the Big Sky Commerce Tournament last year, but it was their first game. So for us, it felt like a first-round loss. And with how football is on the heels of two consecutive disappointing seasons where there's a total of eight wins in the two seasons, you know, it's easy to get down on Idaho sports. Just keep in mind, guys, there's sports other than men's basketball, there's sports other than football. Now, those two are the top in terms of attendance. They're the top in ter terms of enthusiasm, no question. But we have some athletes who are doing a great job, particularly the women this year. So make sure to uh, give, give the women some love. Either watch on Pluto or head down to the spectrum. Now, switching over to the men's season. Now, in terms of uh, Big Sky play, we, we do have some positive news. Now, the not-so-positive news is Idaho is still last place in the league, and we're going to finish in last place in the league. There's no mathematical way for us to do any better than that on the men's side. Uh, but after – we had two games this last week. We lost to Portland State at home 65-67. to and then beat Sacramento State 94 to 90. Those two games, when coupled with the nine point loss to Southern Utah the Saturday before, represent three consecutive single digit games for the Idaho men's team after a run of 12 consecutive double digit losses that spanned through the entire month, uh, almost the entire month of January and the entire month of February. So maybe we are seeing a little, little bit of sun as the season closes out after a long, long winter. Now, the way the Big Sky Conference 
looks as a whole is Montana's in first place at 15 and three. Northern Colorado is second at 14 and four. Montana State charging into third. They're 11 and seven. Weber State's in free fall at 10 and eight. They are tied with Eastern Washington at 10 and eight. Those are the top five seeds, though the final games of the season do have seeding implications because Portland State has rectified their season a bit. They're nine and nine overall, putting them one game out of a potential first round bye. And Southern Utah is nine and 10. So it's not over that either of those teams couldn't get in um, and get a first round bye, though it is unclear um, what that's actually going to look like. So right now, you know, it just in terms of what that would look bracket wise, uh, that means the four and five teams would open against each other in the second round of the tournament. So right now that would mean Weber and Eastern would be playing each other. And right now on the tournament we're held today, Idaho would be, uh, would be playing Portland state in their first round game. We're going to get more into the, the games themselves because there, there really was some positive news. And if you have been listening to the podcast for the entirety of the season, you know, I have been uh, relatively clear. I think that our team, it's not just a, a numbers game of we have few posts, but even the posts we have are not great scores, um, meaning that the skill on our team is perimeter oriented. And I feel that for the entire season, we had, been squat, we had been squandering the use of our talent by not playing fast pace and by not playing outside in. I don't know what happened to Don Verlin after we got killed by Northern Arizona and Flagstaff after the 30 inches of snow in Flagstaff, but this has been a different team for the final three games of the season. And it's positive news, uh, but one of the things that I am just, I'm going to circle back to and I'm curious about is how did it take so long? for us to begin playing this way. Because if, again, you've been listening. I, I've been talking about this for a long time, that this team, there is no route to this team playing the way Verlin wanted them to play and being even okay. Finally, Verlin opened up the offense. We are running less of the wheel action where we have a post screen down to, to open up, to get the wings open for shots, you know, often at the three-point line on the either left or right wing where the screeners post immediately, which means we have two players inside the key and no room to drive. We have finally bailed on doing some of that stuff. And we have some positive results to go through after having done that. And by the way, some of the positive results are even with us not playing that well against Portland State. We actually did not execute on offense that well, but because we were playing a style that was guard friendly, we still had a better output than we've had a ton of the season. Now we lost Portland State 65 to 67. Downside is we led by we led the game by seven points at halftime, 36-29. Ended up losing by two. Just had a real rough second half. You know, we shot 46% in the first half and 29% in the second half. That's your game, guys. It's real hard to win against a team that's even okay shooting 29% overall. Um, our leading wing scorers were Jared Rodriguez had 13 points and three rebounds, but he shot three of 13 from the field. Trayvon Allen had another rough game, scored 10 points, but took him 15 shots to get there, shooting four or 15 from the field. Picked up six rebounds and five assists, so he did contribute elsewhere, but also had five turnovers. Although Allen was not the only person who struggled turnover-wise. I mean, our, our team turned the ball over 19 times. Uh, Trayvon turned it over way too many for him, but that was another reason why we lost this game. And though, even though we lost, I, I feel like th this is an example of 
you know, whenever you look at a team's performance, you got to understand it existing within a spectrum of potential outcomes. You know, for example, a, a team can win a game and they can win the game solely because they shot real well. And there isn't anything to take away from that game other than that. If you shoot 60%, you're probably going to win. Um, separately, you can also play awful and lose by not very many and say like, well, hey, we, we shot a terrible percentage. So even though we shot poorly and stayed in the game, that's all right. You know, that moral victories really do matter when interpreting um, performance. I don't mean moral victories as in a place to land on. I just mean acknowledging the reality of the performance. Um, Idaho played bad against Portland State for a lot of that game, and we only lost by two. Um, in addition to Jared Rodriguez and Trayvon Allen's production, we had three guys who scored nine points. That's Cam Tyson, Cassius Smith-Francisco. That's career high for Cassius Smith-Francisco. And Rayquanis Mitchell off the bench had nine. Um, and, you know, to go through this game, we lost by two points, turned the ball over 19 times. We were outscored on points off turnovers, 7-15. And we were outscored on second chance points, 5-11. to And we still only lost by two, which is positive news. I'm going to get to the overall trend of what to look at for that game after going through the Sacramento State game. By the way, for Portland State, Holland Woods led the way. He had 17 points, 5 assists, um, and also racked up four turnovers. Now, Sacramento State, we won that game 94-90. to that was the most fun game we've had this entire year, and it's not close. Trayvon Allen had a career-high 29 points against Sac State. Um, funny thing about Trayvon is it, his career-high had been 25 his freshman year off a senior night or a final home game against Weaver State, and in a, another senior night, although he didn't have any seniors to acknowledge. Uh, Nate Sherwood had a video to acknowledge him, um, but he... According to, I believe, the Argonaut, uh, Nate Sherwood did not want to be honored uh, via the senior night. Now, side note on there, I've referenced this a couple times. I have no idea if this is valid or not. Uh, the ESPN show out of Missoula, Tutel and Nuanas, has said Nate Sherwood is set to come back next year off a medical redshirt. Now, I say I have no idea if that's correct because I've heard no indication from the Idaho side that that is what is going to happen. Um, I do know Nate Sherwood did not want to be honored on senior night, but um, I, you know, I haven't talked to the guy. I have no idea if it's more of a thing if he didn't play, so he didn't this year, so he doesn't want to be involved in that. I don't know if it's more just a personal decision that has to do with his uh, his comfort with you know relative spotlight, um, or maybe he's come back next year. I have no idea. We're going to hear more about that, you know, as the year ends and next year starts. Um, it's entirely possible that the ESPN contributors, though um, Coulter, Coulter Nuanez is the guy who made this reference. He's a former reporter. It is entirely possible that he is he made that um, he made that statement based off the idea that if a guy is injured and misses his entire senior year, the average kid will come back for medical redshirt. So th there's a ton of variables around there, but it's worth acknowledging that there there has been reference that Nate Sherwood may be coming back next year. We'll see. I'm not saying he is, but there have been murmurs. Anyway, going back to the actual game. Trayvon, career high, 29 points shot, 8 to 15 from the field. 29 points on 15 shots. Pretty dang good. That's um, just under two points a shot. That's that's elite level production. Trayvon had a great game. Also had four assists. Cam Tyson scored 17 points off, 5 of 8 three-point shots. Shot 6 to 10 from the field overall. Jared Rodriguez had his near another near double double 16 points nine rebounds and Raekwon is Mitchell put in 12 points off the bench now the big big numbers from this game Idaho shot 55 percent from the field overall 
75% in the second half. Man, it's hard to lose if you shoot 75% in the second half, although we did try. We, we did give up 90 points. Um, but I want to look at some trends. First, like I said, we played open. When I say we played open, I mean we did not try to establish the post to get points, which is great news because this roster doesn't have a post guy. You know, if I'm Portland State's head coach and we try to get Scott Blakeney 40 touches, I, I would – not that we've ever actually tried that, but just going over the example, you know, if Scott Blakeney gets 40 touches and I'm Portland State's coach, I'm ecstatic that this is the strategy we've used, which, by the way, is just a caricature of what we have had done for almost the entire season. Berlin played a slower pace and he tried to have, um, he tried to have his offense be, you know, more ball control, which is what he's wanted to do for a long time. And it was wretched this year. Like in a lot of ways, it's indefensible. And I really think at some point we, we need to get an answer out of Don Berlin about why did it take so long to put together that this team needed a guard friendly offense. I talked about it forever and I don't get paid a penny play for that to coach that basketball team um verlin gets paid a lot of money he gets paid over two hundred thousand dollars a year this is not this was not a hard conclusion to come to and it took verlin the entire year so you know if you if you're in the anti-verlin camp this is point number one on on your litany of verlin issues this is what you need to go to is in the the awful season we had this year he don verlin exhibited the worst case of coaching incompetence by not tailoring the offense to the roster he finally has done that in the final three games i want to go over some stats that relate to that now first there's two bars to playing guard from the offense now one you spread the floor which is to say if even if you have a post who's a non-three shooter you do not have the guy the post clogging driving lanes he screens away from the paint to get other people open or is involved in pick and rolls which is another way to get screened now, if your five is a shooter, then he's just on the outside and, and everyone's behind the three-point line. You still have movement. You still have cutting. But that is how you play a wide-open offense. We finally started doing that. Part two is you increase the pace, which is you try to get points both in actual transition or what we call secondary transition, which is when the other team might score, but we still push the ball to get our offense set up faster so we can get better shots, meaning we get shots when their defense is not wholly set up. Now, our pace numbers for most of the season, our team played at what I consider to be a, a, a slower pace. You know, if we look at the games preceding the last three, against on February, February 4th in Southern Utah, we, our pace was 64.9. When we got killed by Montana, it was 69.4. When we got killed by Montana State, it was 68.3. When we got killed by Northern Colorado, it was 63.9. We got killed by Eastern Washington, it was 65.1. When we, when we got killed by Northern Arizona, it was 64. Our final three games all have been close. Pace for Southern Utah, 75. That's an 11, a, 11 more possessions for our team than against Northern Arizona. That's playing to the talent. That is pushing the ball even if you're not getting points in transition, that is what this team should have been doing from day one. Against Portland State, a two-point loss. Our pace was 75.1. And against Sac State, in that win, our pace was 71.5. Prior to that three-game run, in the entire Big Sky season, 
Idaho had had two games with a pace at 70 or more. They were both losses, one to Northern Arizona at home and one to Weber at home. The Weber, Weber game was a closer game. Now, one, one might say, well, when we pushed the pace earlier, we didn't win. My pushback to that is look at all the games that we played with a pace of, of between 60 and 66 and look at blowouts, which is what we accrued. You know, in our run of double-digit losses that started on January 10th against Montana State, and our last double-digit loss was February 21st against Northern Arizona, we broke 70 once, and we lost by double-digit digits in all the others, which is to say there is no evidence that this team played well at all trying to establish the ball control that Don Verlin wanted to establish. Because when this team tried to establish ball control, what it meant is we took contested bad shots. And that happened for a year. And that's a real question fans need to ask is how did it take Don Verlin and co the entire season to figure out some pretty brain dead stuff when you look at our roster of you know, if you look at the scoring for our players in conference, the top we only have one one po- one post scorer who had any sort of reliable production whatsoever. Uh, Scott Blakeney, he is our fourth leading scorer at 6.7 points per game. Playing inside theoretically was helpful to him. Now, I don't actually believe it was because Scott is not an elite post player in terms of footwork. He's not an elite athlete, and he doesn't have. He doesn't outside. He's actually smaller than a lot of the centers he matches up against. Post ups are awful opportunities for Scott to score. When the team spreads the floor out, Scott gets a lot more catch and shoot opportunities where he's wide open. Those are higher percentage shots than a contested post shot for Scott. When the floor is spread, it's also easier for Scott to pick up offensive rebounds, which is this is counterintuitive to some people, which is the belief is that a guard heavy team will rebound poorly. And by the way, that was one of the real problems we've had for a lot of the season is we we were out-rebounded by a ton. But playing a guard-heavy style, a guard-oriented style, can nullify some of that rebounding problems because by spreading the floor out, we don't have all of the other team's big guys right next to the rim to do a better job of rebounding than our big or not-so-big guys. For example, against Portland State, we actually won the rebounding battle against Portland State. One of the few times we've done this year, we out-rebounded them 40-36. to 36. Against Dak State, we drew dead even, 31-31. to 31. That has hardly happened at all this season. And when it happened, it was while we played a style that theoretically should have made it harder for our guards to do that. But this is just an example of when you play, when a team plays relative to their strengths, not relative to a style decided upon in advance of the players, which I don't know how else to understand this season other than to say that. When a team plays to their strengths, they play better. That's it. It works in every facet of the game. A guard-friendly offense, yeah, it is better for guards to create shots. But you know what? Posts, who shouldn't be the center of an offense, they benefit from a guard-friendly offense too. And another way to look at this is the offensive rating. Against Southern Utah, we had an offensive rating of 101.3. Against Portland State, we had a pretty bad offensive rating. You know, we still had the 19 turnovers. We lost a lot of possessions, but still scored 65, which at the time was one of our better outings in the last month or so. 
I mean, against Sac State, we had a season-high offensive rating of 130.6. Again, the pace, Southern Utah, 75. Portland State, 75. Sac State, 71.5. This answers itself. How should we have played? We should have played open and fast the entire year. The last three games alone have shaved our scoring margin from negative 15.1 to negative 13.8. Sorry, we are still miles away from being competitive relative to the rest of the conference because um, Idaho State is the second worst scoring margin at negative 5.8. So we, we still are eight points behind them. But if you look at our last three games, a score where we were outscored by nine, outscored by two, and then we won by, by four, that's being outscored by seven points across the three games. That's a scoring margin of negative 2.3. That would put us right in the middle of the pack. Negative 2.3 would put us right around what Southern Utah is at. Southern Utah is still in contention for a first-round buy in the Big Sky Conference tournament. That's how big a shift that is. And so I think we should be happy. And now these, this is the big question we're going to have for going into next year. Do we use the entire season as our barometer when we played a real dumb style relative to our strengths? Or do we use the final five games? We'll see. You know, we close this season with a couple game, one game that may be tough, another that we'll see. You know, on March 7th, we play Weber State. That's Thursday at 6, 6 p.m. in Weber, or in Ogden, Utah. Then we close out the season at Idaho State in Pocatello. Tip off at 6.05 p.m. So Thursday at 6 and Saturday at 6.05. Weber State is in the midst of kind of flaming out on the year. They are, they're down to 11 and seven, I believe in conference. Idaho state is second to last in conference. You know, Idaho state is, Idaho state is six and 12 in conference. Correct me on Weber. They are 10 and eight in conference. Well, Idaho state just picked up a win at Weber state. Um, you know, in the first games we played in Moscow, that was early in the season. Uh, games that maybe don't even apply. When we played Idaho state first to open conference play, we lost that game. Um, that to me was one of the uglier games. We lost at 55-72, but we had a bunch of people who were a combination of sick and injured. Then we had one of our better games against Weber State. We lost 93-87. to Cam Tyson had his career high, or Big Sky career high, 27 points that game. You know, we're going to see how those, how those games work out because um, for Weber State, this is definitely a game that impacts seeding. Uh, for, for And it's a much bigger game seeding-wise for Weber than it is for Idaho State. For Idaho State, it does impact seeding because in the in the 8 to 10 slot in the conference, we have Sac State 7-11, Northern Arizona 7-12, Idaho State 6-12. So really, you know, a game separates those three, three teams. But none of those teams are going to compete for a bye. It is, it's understood. They're, they are jockeying for they play first-round Big Sky Tournament. It is a very big game for Weber State in terms of staying in the top five because Portland State's nine and nine. They are one game out. And I don't know how the tiebreak would go between Weber State and Portland State because they split their they split their regular season games. So we're gonna see how that happens to work out. Uh, but circling back to, to Idaho, you know, big question is are we gonna continue playing guard friend guard oriented? Um, if we play guard oriented, it is worth looking at the last two games and seeing how we do and, and looking at what what kind of production we get because I can tell you in the most in our last few games we are getting a little bit different kind of production from some of our guys and part of that has to do with getting better opportunities. Like for example, Rick Mitchell. 
who not too long ago was shooting 28% from three in conference. But, uh, and by the way, that's as an alleged shooter. Uh, but in the last three games, Raekwonis Mitchell scored eight, nine, and 12. I think it was the last four games, actually, seven, eight, nine, 12. It is a different conversation about, hey, what is Raekwondis Mitchell when we look at production like this, when he is in a situation where he is getting open shots or he is getting in rhythm shots in a way that he was not earlier in the season? And I'm not trying to pick on Raekwondis Mitchell. Um, he is just one guy to look at, but he is one, maybe the, the number one beneficiary from us playing this way. Because, you know, before that 12-point game that he had against Sac State, he only had one other double-digit scoring conference game. That's back on January 10th. Between those two games, there were a lot of missed shots on Raekwonis Mitchell's part. But I'm not saying that to fault him. I'm saying I think he was in a terrible position relative to his current skill set and relative to how the heck are we supposed to evaluate these guys, then I don't know. Because we, we, again, we do know we have a four-star center from Oregon State who, if he's healthy, could be a game-changer in Big Sky play next year, Jack Wilson. We'll see what that means. But I got to tell you, the big takeaway I think we should have, or we should hope for, is for the love of God, is Don Verlin finally going to begin playing 21st, 21st century basketball? You know, there's... The macro trend of basketball is to move towards open space and to move towards a lot of guard-friendly offenses. And this isn't just an en vogue kind of thing. There's mathematical reasons for this. One, it's just fun to watch the teams play, but that's not a math reason. Two, in 2013, 2014, Kurt Goldsbury, he works for, at a time, he worked for Grantland.com. He, one of, he does a lot of analytic-related basketball work. Now, you don't have to want, you don't have to be knee deep in the analytic world to understand the point I'm about to make with Kurt Goldsberry's work. He made an infographic in 2013-14 that charted NBA field goal percentages by space on the floor. Conventional wisdom for a long time is that the further away the player was when they, when they shot it, the worse the shot was. Kurt Goldsberry's research showed him that that is absolutely not true. The worst shot in the NBA to take is a four-foot shot. Lowest percentage-wise, the worst shot is from four feet. Question, why is a four-foot shot a worst shot to take with NBA players that, with NBA skills and NBA athleticism? Why is that a worse shot than a 23-foot three-pointer? And the answer is simple. A four-foot shot is always going to be a contested shot because if the player was not contested, he'd go in for a one foot, one footer, i.e. a layup or a dunk. If you're shooting from four feet, it means you are shooting a shot where someone is right there trying to block your shot and probably altering your shot at the very least. Now, how does that relate to our team and our style of play? When I say post shots are not necessarily good shots, the people who believe post shots are good shots are the people who believe that a close shot is a good shot. But that is absolutely, again, not, that's absolutely not true. A post shot is a good shot if the person can get open or if the person physically outmatches the other player. If you don't have one of those two, one of those two scenarios down, a post shot's an atrocious shot because a post shot is always contested 
and a post shot is hard to get the rebound on because very often your biggest player is taking that shot. And just by virtue of where the defense is, your post player is out of position, your best, i.e. your best rebounder is out of position to get that rebound. So translate this to Idaho basketball. What does that mean? Good shots are a mix of open shots and shots that players are competent with and, and can replicate. For this team, open shots are often three-point shots, and they're often catch-and-shoot shots. Now, this team doesn't need to shoot 35 threes a game, but this team, when they play open, which is to say spread out, they get better shots. When this guard-heavy team plays open, and when they play fast, they get better looks overall. And another thing, when this team plays open, that means players can drive and we actually get free throw attempts. You know, against Sac State, one of the things I've talked about Trayvon Allen is he shoots so many dang mid-range shots. A ton of those are contested. Those are rough shots. It's very hard to shoot a high percentage. Trayvon got to the free throw line uh, 10 times against Sac State, which meant he was putting the ball on the floor. It means he was getting open. Against... Portland State, Jared Rodriguez shot 313 from the field, but he, he was able to get six free throws, six free throw attempts, made five. When players do that, they don't have to shoot 60% on tough shots. This is just the math reason why teams are playing more open is you get good shots or open shots, which sometimes that open shot is 20 feet away from the basket. That is, that is typically a better shot than a contested four-footer. And this Idaho team, where if we go through our – Top scores, top score Trayvon Allen, guard. Number two score, Cameron Tyson, guard. Number three score, Jared Rodriguez. He's a forward, but he's much stronger off the dribble than he is in the post. Scott Blakeney is our one guy in the, who's in the top four who scores sometimes in the post. But that is just not where he's strongest. And to, to really try to put, bring this back to a single point, the jury is in, in terms of, our, in terms of the results. The three best games of our entire season, the best three-game run is our last three games. What'd we do? Well, we didn't play that great on defense, which those are the kind of mistakes a young team should make. Those are, you know, if we, if we replayed the season and we played an open offense, I would, I would be first to say, okay, a huge focus for us has to be defense. It should be understood that a young, a young team is going to struggle defensively. And by the way, also, it should be understood that a guard-heavy team, it's more likely that that team's going to struggle on the defensive. Those are the, that's the type of learning curve that should have been okay for us to have. Or another thing, you know, we had 19 turnovers against Portland State. Obviously, 19 turnovers isn't great. But if, if a team's going to have offensive problems, it is better for our offensive problems to be a result of the, the actual mistakes younger players should make. So, for example, turnovers. Young players turn the ball over. That happens. It's because the, bas the basketball IQ is not all the way there. Or these guys are transitioning from being go-to guys all the time in high school to now not everyone can be a go-to guy. It's just how the game goes. That takes time to relearn what your role is. That, that can lead to bad shots. That can lead to turnovers. That is absolutely fine. But you know what's not fine is like what we did earlier in the year against Sac State the first time. We scored 48 points against Sac State the first time we played. Well, we scored 94 did we get more than, did we improve twice as much? You know, if we doubled 48, we're at 96 points. We essentially doubled that in our second game. Are we twice as good? 
Well, yes and no. In terms of raw skill, is are all you know is Trayvon Allen twice as good now? No, he's essentially the same player. Cam twice and t- twice as good as he was first time. No, but were they put in position to in, to play the way they should? And can they perform twice as good when that happens? Yeah, yeah, entirely feasible. And this is, you know, this is where we're going to leave it. Again, we have uh, we close out with Weber State on Thursday at six p.m. in Ogden, and then Saturday at 6.05 against Pocatello, both those games on Pluto TV. So a real question for us is, um, will this trend continue through the rest of the season? And will Verlin, will Verlin look, look at next year's roster and say, hey, um, maybe, maybe this playing fast pace works. Maybe based off the talent he's recruited, maybe that works. You know, we're going to see, but that's, that to me is actually a bigger question than, you know, who comes back or who are the guys who step up and all that. It's, is Verlin going to put the guys in position to succeed next year? I hope the answer is closer to what we've seen the last three games than it was in the previous, you know, 25. Uh, but we'll see. You know, you we should be happy. We finally have some positive notes to look at. But again, a, the single question that Verlin should have to answer at some point is what took him so long? Th- this isn't rocket science. I've been talking about the entire season. And I don't think I'm a basketball genius. In fact, I'm unequivocally not a basketball genius, but we'll see, you know, the season closes this week and that's about where we're, where we're at. Are, are we going to continue to do the things that work and how does that work in next season? Tune in, find out. We'll of course keep you updated as the season closes. And as we learn news about next season, you moving to some quick update. We have about the presidential search, you know, this last week. And by the way, as of this recording, uh, we have not been able to go through all the interviews yet. By the way, the interview process is not done uh, for all the candidates. We're going to give a bigger update on that next week. But uh, I do want to give a little um, presidential finalism 101 to our listeners. Five finalists, which were uh, named to the university, include Christopher Callahan, uh, Dean of the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications and Vice Provost at Arizona State university we have diane chase diane chase is the only actually diane chase is not the only woman i was about to say she's the only woman she's not we have diane chase executive vice president and provost of unlv we have scott green global chief operating and financial officer of hogan lavelles we have elizabeth spiller the other female candidate dean of the college of letters arts and social sciences at uc davis and paul tikowski dean of college of engineering architecture and technology at Oklahoma State. Uh, now, all of these guys are going to have different strengths, no question, um, based off of forums and based off of just the political environment of Idaho. I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about Scott Green. Um, Scott Green does not have the same academic background as the other four candidates, which, uh, which isn't to say he doesn't have some academic background. He's actually the only Idaho alum on the list of the of the, of the final five. Um, he is, for some people, Scott Green is going to be, uh, and I, I'm talking about people who haven't listened to necessarily all the interviews. I'm just saying people who see this uh, kind of splash of information. Scott Green does stand out in one way of being a non-academic, which means there's a chance that he would not necessarily view Idaho as a stepping stone to move from. Now, I'm not saying he would. Um, I'm not saying he wouldn't leave at some point. But he is the only Idaho alum. He has a private sector background, which for some alums, that is going to be appealing to them. Uh, 
you know, because it's not a secret. A lot of people are upset with the status of um, how things have gone with Chuck Staben. Um, I am not one of the people who thinks Chuck Staben is apparently guilty of every single sin that has taken place at the University of Idaho in his time here. Um, I think most of the takes involving Chuck Staben are incredibly simple, um, to put it mildly. Um, but I, I do believe that is that the Staben's um, inability to increase enrollment at the university is a real problem. Um, and I do believe that um, it's a problem that there's some frigid relationship between Chuck Staben and, and the alums. Now, I absolutely do not believe this is all Chuck Staben's fault whatsoever. Um, I think that Chuck Staben, now I'm going to give a hot take here, and this is, the, this is a Brian Marceau opinion. This is not an opinion of Thubs at the club. And we will fully flush, I can fully flush this out at a different time. But um, my hot take, again, my opinion, not the opinion of Thubs at the club, is that Chuck Staben absolutely made the right call to move Idaho down to the Big Sky Conference and that it did not matter who was the president at that time. The alums would, a lot of the alums would not be happy with the person who made that decision, which, by the way, making a tough decision. Uh, decision that you believe to be right, even when it is not necessarily popular in other circles, we call that leadership. But with Chuck Staben, that was considered an unforgivable sin. Again, I'm, I will fully flush this out at a different time as a bigger pot, as a, I mean, this is really a potentially a single issue podcast on its own. And I am not saying anyone else affiliated with Tubbs at Club agrees with me, but that's, that is my hot take, which is that Staben made the right call moving the football team down to the big sky, and it did not matter who the president was at the time. Whoever the pres whatever president made that decision, no one was going to be happy with, and that president was going to leave, which, by the way, that is not just because of what happened with Chuck Staben. It happened at University of Massachusetts, too. Uh, University of Massachusetts had considered moving down for football. Their alums ended up raising a ton of money. But the president at the time who was planning on making the decision, he, of course, was out. Um, alums are quite attached to their football, which is fine. I'm an alum. I'm attached to the football team. But um, there is precedent at other universities. And I, I just went over UMass. Again, th there are other universities where this decision has, where the decision of either to get rid of football or to um, can at least consider, because Idaho's only team has actually moved down. Uh, but the, the, even the question of should football move down is death to the administrator's relationship with the alums. So my hot take, there's no, there was no rectifying that relationship after Chuck Staben made the correct decision to move down. Now, it is not necessarily Chuck Staben's fault that there's a negative relationship between him and the alums, which is not to say Chuck Staben's done everything perfect because he hasn't. But the fact that there is a negative relationship right now, uh, or the perception of a negative relationship or an antagonistic relationship between alums and the university president and the state board of education and the university president. The fact that that exists, whether it should or shouldn't, is a problem. And there will be an appetite, I believe, for someone who just seems like the foil of Chuck Staben. And Scott Green, you could say, is the foil in that he, one, has roots at the University of Idaho, and two, he comes from the private sector. But that does not mean that he is necessarily going to be better for what alums think is or for what, by the way, it doesn't necessarily matter what alums think. I, I hope 
the committee just makes the right decision. I hope I hope it overtly is not a decision based strictly off sports. Um, but uh, it, you know, we this last year there's been a bit of instability at the administrative level, which has mixed with poor sports. Um, to kind of create a sense that it feels like there's nothing going on in Idaho positive, which is not true. We're, we're going to break ground uh, this year on the new basketball only facility. By the way, that's another thing where, um, you know, alums are quick to point out how Chuck Saban apparently is awful at everything. Well, Hey, look, the fundraising for that arena went pretty fast. Um, him and Rob, that was uh, Chuck Staben Rob, and Rob Spear ex executing that plan. Uh, Rob Spear wasn't here for the last year, but, but uh, that was those two guys who, who were not going to be at the university. Uh, both of them will know, I mean, Rob Spears is already not at the university and Chuck Stavins going to be gone um, at the end of this year from an, the administrative capacity. But that arena is going to be there. Uh, and that's a huge deal. And that was orchestrated and executed under the supervision of Chuck Staben and a lot of the execution, um, at least the being, getting stages with Rob Spear. Um, so for the for, for people who are critical of the admin, which is fine, you can be. Uh, I do feel that it's worth spending time acknowledging where the guys got things right, and they definitely got the arena right. The, the arena looks great. It's going to be a top two facility in the big sky when it's done, and we were two million short of the funding required for it, which translates that we're going to be breaking ground pretty quick. Circling back, we got five finalists. Uh, Scott Green's the name that jumps off the page right now, as far as as far as um, not being from the academic world, and some people will want that, but uh, we're going to give a, a more in-depth overview of the other candidates, which again, five finalists, Chris, Christopher Callahan from Arizona State, Diane Chase from UNLV, Scott Green from, from Hogan Lavelle's, uh, Elizabeth Spiller from UC Davis, and Paul Tikowski from Oklahoma State. Final segment I want to get to, it's a, it relates to a Twitter poll conducted through the Tubbs of the Club account, idea came to Chris Hammond from the Montana Mint. Uh, Montana Mint, they they do an FCS podcast that focuses on Montana, Montana State. They also do a little bit, little bit of basketball stuff I recorded with them earlier in the year. But the question was, uh, from the Mint guys, the question was, would you rather have your favorite NFL team win the Super Bowl? Would you rather win in football against your rival, which for them is Montana, Montana State, but all the wild game that happens every year? Or would you rather have your team win the FCS championship? Now, for me, I'm boiling this down. I'm throwing the football one out because I don't have a team I'm that tied to. I'm sure a bunch of Vandal fans are probably pretty emotionally attached to the Seattle Seahawks. Maybe some people locally are attached to the Denver Broncos. Uh, but the big thing for me is I care about, hey, the question is, Boise, would I rather beat Boise State in football or would I rather win an FCS championship? And this might be a generational kind of question in that, um, you know, the, the rivalry between Idaho and Boise State, in some ways, it's theoretical. You know, we are not playing Boise State in football next year. And now, of course, we're in a different subdivision than them now. Um, but... The Boise State-Idaho rivalry had been theoretical for a while. You know, the la last game, last time Idaho and BSU played, it was in Moscow in 2010. Now, it was so long ago that that was back when Chris Peterson was still at Boise State and back when Rob Akey 
was at Idaho. The score of that game was 52-14. to 14. Boise State won. It was awful. I was there. But the reason I bring that up is I think the state of Idaho, and I blame this mostly on the Boise State side, the state of Idaho is really bailing on a ton of enthusiasm and a ton of local economic benefit by this rivalry no longer existing at all. Now in football, you know, maybe from the Boise State perspective, which by the way, Boise State pl still plays FCS teams. Just about every D1 team will schedule an FCS game. With Boise State now, um, in FBS, nothing, and us in FCS, we wouldn't be able to host the rivalry game. So that kind of screws that up. But it's not just in football that this doesn't exist. You know, in basketball, Idaho has not played Boise State since the 2013-14 season. Now, for a while, Idaho and Boise State played each other on a neutral court in Boise, which, by the way, is not so neutral uh, in terms of where the location is. But I already think that Idaho, the state of Idaho, and I'm, I'm saying state of Idaho because both universities are involved in the state of Idaho, that exist in the state of Idaho. Already, the universities were handling that in a relatively dumb way um, in that I think it's just inexcusable that we have not maintained this rivalry at basketball. And when I say that, I mean, Idaho has not hosted Boise State since the 2010-2011 season, back when we were both in the whack. You know, for a while, Idaho wasn't competitive with Boise State for basketball. Uh, part of that was because Idaho had some bad basketball teams where you know, we had a 14-game losing streak to Boise State that we, that we snapped in the 2008-2009 season when we swept Boise State. But there were a lot of vandal loss, you know, over around a decade or so against Boise State, which, by the way, correct the record, the last time Idaho and Boise State played was actually 2014-15 season, not 2013-14 season. We haven't played that game in basketball since 2014-15, which is inexcusable. But it should be a home-and-home -home series anyway, because both, first off, in Moscow, it's a different environment. Second, that in Moscow, that's going to be our number one seller uh, in terms of, you know, gate ticket in terms of people making that an event. But by the way, I'm guessing in Boise, that could be a game too, in terms of attendance, in terms of enthusiasm. But the big point I'm trying to make, going back to the question, would a Vandal fan rather beat Boise State or should we rather win an FCS championship? I say I'm at the point where I think Vandal fans need to, especially at the football level, because there's the, the big divide between subdivisions. We need to just bail on Boise State. I mean, we can put them down. No, no question. We're rivals. We're allowed to do that. But I just don't put that much stock in Boise State anymore. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be nine years in the next season since the last time we played them in football. And we, you know, the rivalry just doesn't exist in basketball in terms of the way it should easily be put together. And we, which, by the way, Boise State plays other big CI teams. Boise State lost to Idaho State this year. You know, we, we could make that a home-and-home -home kind of schedule if we wanted to treat it like a rivalry. But um, I, I put a lot of the blame for the rivalry not existing on Boise State. But in terms of our interest, would it be a big deal if Idaho were to beat Boise State? Yes. Boise State owns a 12-game winning streak over Idaho um, since our last game against them in 2010. In fact, the last time Idaho an Idaho football team beat a Boise State football team was back in 1998 in Boise. Um, Idaho won that game 36-35, which, by the way, head coach for Boise State, a guy named Dirk Cutter, a former NFL coach who was uh, recently fired, also an Idaho State alum. He's no longer Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach. But that's how long it was. 
a guy who's coaching the pros. That was when he was coaching at BSU, and BSU is not the type of team we think of now. Uh, Dirk Cutter. By the way, the Boise State coaching tree went from Dirk Cutter to Dan Hawkins, and from Dan Hawkins, it went to Chris Peterson. Chris Peterson is no longer there. I'm not going to spend time over the state of the Boise State program. You know, Boise State has a 12-game winning streak on us. We haven't played for nine years. Um, I think that ship has sailed. And I think we need to – fans should care about the FCS playoffs because that's where we're at. You know, one of the questions we sometimes have or sometimes gets addressed is, you know, how do we compare the FCS playoffs to a bowl game? Because Idaho did go to three bowl games. We have no, – no fan has seen us in the FCS playoffs for a long time. And I think the big question you have to decide there is, what is a bigger deal to you, the – the event of the game itself or what the game itself signifies. Cause I'll tell you that I am, I am not a guy who was that ecstatic about some of our bowl games. I watched the bowl games and I was happy we made the bowl games. I was, I watched at Gambino's when we won against Bowling Green uh, back in, I believe it was the 2009 season was yeah. 2009 season. Uh, the game was played, I believe, 2010. Yeah, 2009-2010 season uh, would have been 2009-2010 season. Um, I was I watched that game. I was ecstatic at that watching that game. You know, uh, the one the guy who handles football for Tubbs of Club, Chris, he was at the Potato Bowl a few years ago, or the, in the 20, in 2016 when we beat Colorado State. Um, and what Chris will tell you is that the environment of a bowl game is is, is fun. And I have no pushback on that whatsoever. I accept that there's a chance that the bowl game atmosphere actually is fun. And I accept there's a chance the bowl game atmosphere is analogous to working pretty deep into the FCS playoffs because there are the attendance questions about FCS playoffs. By the way, there are real questions about attendance of bowl games. It's not as though the FCS playoffs is the only thing that has, um, let's say, underwhelming at times attendance. You play, pay attention to the attendance of bowl games. A, there's a ton of empty seats in those stadiums. But to me, it's actually not the environment that matters as much. Now, I want as many people to go, and I think it's more fun when people do go. For example, when uh, North Dakota State and Eastern Washington played in the FCS championship, and that was sold out, or pretty dang near sold out, uh, that was like a real fun atmosphere. But what I care about more is what the game signifies. And when people talk about a meaningless bowl game, um, I think at times – that conversation gets diverted to, well, the bowl games are fun. There's a lot of people go there. It's a great atmosphere. And by the way, I mean, that is an important part of the game too. But when people say meaningless bowl games, what they mean is the game itself doesn't necessarily signify anything. And I absolutely agree that the bowl games, if you're not in the playoffs, the games don't necessarily signify much. And especially if you're ceiling, you know, for Idaho, the ceiling in FBS was the potato bowl or at the humanitarian bowl for the first few iterations uh, that that was their Super Bowl essentially. So, you know, the difference between going seven and six or going eight and three or nine and nine and three, you know, around there during regular season, it was negligible because the, the destination was the potato bowl. That's it. What it signifies is, is that the team had a good season for them, but it doesn't mean anything in terms of quantifying where they're at in relation to the rest of the nation. What the FCS playoffs does is it really tells you, uh, where your team stacks up in relation to the rest of your competition. So for me, now this is an opinion some people won't share. Um, I know Alex Bowman was on the show, and he um, he certainly probably not share this. I would put the weight of a single bowl game as equal to making the FCS playoffs, just making. I'm talking about in terms of what it signifies. 
Making a bowl game signified that you had a solid season. Making the FCS playoffs would signify that we'd had a pretty good season. Winning FCS playoff games to me means much more than winning, than winning the Potato Bowl or the Humanitarian Bowl. This is another Brian Marceau opinion, not Tubbs of Club opinion. Uh, because the wins in the FCS playoffs, they actually they they mean we're advancing in relation to the rest of the of the teams we're actually playing against. Which is which is to say, there are real stakes associated to that game. It really does help sort out who the final teams are, who the top teams are. And you know, this last season we had three Big Sky teams make the FCS Final Eight. We had UC Davis. They played Eastern Washington. Told me one of those teams could have made it. And then Weber State. Uh, they lost to Maine, but they made the Final Eight. Three three Big Sky teams made the Final Eight. I would be much more ecstatic to say that our best season, let's say, was making the final eight of the FCS playoffs. I would weight that as being significantly significantly higher than a bowl than making a you know famous potato bowl or humanitarian bowl. Which circling back, though it'd be great to beat BSU with especially with how losing to if BSU lost to us with the conference designation difference, um how that would just torpedo a lot of their hopes for the season. It would be great to watch them um, just have to deal with that disappointment. To me, this rivalry is essentially over on the football field. Until real conference realignment takes place, until we have some sort of sifting where either the group of five has a real chance to compete, which means Boise State's uh, chances are different in terms of making the playoff at the FBS level, or until um, it is definitively clear that Idaho is going to stay FCS, and I don't have any intelligence to say we're not. It's just that is a real question a lot of the ones have is, is this temporary? Um, are we doing this just for, just for stability, but then we will leave once we, once we have an opportunity? We'll see, because as far as I know, we, we actually need an invitation to move up to the FBS now. I think we really need – I want us to buy in. I think it's more fun when our team actually buys in, and to me it is representative of something. If we win the FCS championship, you hang a banner for that. And that banner would mean more than the famous potato bowl banners in terms of what it actually represents. Um, not that the not to take away from the people who did well to win those bowl games, but if we were to hang a banner for a championship, that's a big deal. That's a t- that is people in Montana. In Montana's a great run in the late in the nineties and the early two thousands. They went to I believe five championships, one two. Could have won more. They, they that was actually part of why Bobby Howe didn't stay. Well, it was a mix of the got a better paying job, but people in Missoula were not disappointed when Bobby Howe left at first. At first, But um, circling back, it's a huge deal to Montana fans. If you know any Montana fans, those championships they won. They do not talk about every single time they beat BSU, but they will talk about those championship teams. Those are the teams people remember forever. And that is why I think Idaho, for football, we need to just accept the Boise State rivalry is done. And winning an FCS championship would be significantly bigger. You know, that would be a team that people talk about and people would want to remember for a long time. Uh, versus, can fans even tell you when the last time we beat Boise State was? I can tell you because I researched it for this. It's 1998. But going into this podcast, could anyone tell you when the last time that we beat Boise State was? A ton of people are not going to be able to, partially because Boise State has a 12-game winning streak dating back to 1999. But beating Boise State was something this program used to do with regularity. We don't have an FCS championship. It would be a new level for this program to reach, no matter what classification we talk about. For us, we're an FCS. So I think the question, would I rather beat Boise State in football or win a championship? No question. Rather beat, rather win the championship. Not even close. Uh, to me, I think Vandal fans need to just accept Boise State's out the window. 
we need to buy into to renewing the rivalries of Montana, Eastern Washington, and maybe get a new one with Idaho State. Uh, but really, bail on Boise State. Should be a, we should be looking for the FCS championship. I'm not saying we'll be there next year because we have that. We'll talk about that during football season. But um, we're 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 living in the world of hypotheticals. It's the championship, no question. Well, thank you all for downloading. Make sure to um, subscribe to Tubs of the Club via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, any of the other venues you can. Um, thanks for sticking with us through the basketball season. We're going to continue uh, to update you on the presidential search as that evolves. We're going to look. We're going to be closing the season out next week or the week after so when the conference tournament takes place. Um, but you know, thanks for downloading. Thanks for staying with us. We'll keep you updated on all things Idaho related, particularly sports related. We'll see you again next week. And as always, go Bears.